0: It's Friday, May 20th, 2022, the 485th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Before we get started today, as always, I just have to remind you about the great American patriot, Mike Lindell, and his great American manufacturing company, MyPillow. You can go to MyPillow.com right now, type in the promo code REASONABLE, and receive up to 60% off items all across the MyPillow store. You can also find plenty of buy one, get one free offers there. So if you want to make yourself more comfortable, your home more comfortable, your bed more comfortable, you go to MyPillow.com, promo code REASONABLE, and with your purchase, they will even send you a free gift, the book by Mike Lindell. So... Please support this show, support Mike Lindell in all his great work to try to fix what happened to the country on November 3rd, 2020, and support his great American manufacturing company, MyPillow.com, promo code REASONABLE. Also, if you'd like another way to support the podcast, you can just look in the podcast description wherever you happen to be listening to this podcast, and there's a whole range of options. Crypto wallets, Ko-Fi, the Substack, the merch site. Check them all out. If you are in a position to support the show, please do. I would appreciate it. Particularly if you find that you get a lot of value out of what I do. I may have to move in the next couple of months. So whatever your support, whatever way you choose to support, that support will be put to good use in allowing me to continue to do the work I do. If that's something you appreciate, if it adds value to your life, then I would appreciate it if you could help me continue to do that job so that I can still devote time to this without doing something grifty. Can't do any grifty stuff. Sorry. So let's get into it. Now, For the last two years, I have consistently talked about how the population of America, I believe, is not the population that is consistently represented to us every time they take a new census. And it certainly is not the number of actual Americans in our country. And the census doesn't count the number of actual Americans. And there have been court battles about this the census and many of the people involved in running the census argue that the census as constructed in our founding documents is intended just to yield a number of people in each individual state, not a number of citizens, a number of people so that resources and whatnot can be properly apportioned. And so by virtue of that, illegal immigrants should also be counted. Now, the critical thing is that the census count is what dictates the congressional apportionment of seats by state. And so if states are overcounted, then they could potentially get more representation than they deserve. They would have extra congressmen. And that also means they would have extra electoral votes. And if you're interested in creating millions of additional voter registries so that you can fill out millions of additional votes that don't represent real voters, the census is a great place to start. If you can corrupt the census and skew the census numbers to your own political benefit, well, that's a very good way of taking undeserved power, which is what the global communists have been doing in our government for decades. So I have been pointing at this issue for a pretty long time. And by the way, when I say That I said something a couple years ago, or I said something a year ago, or hey, we talked about this a long time ago, and now it's coming around. I'm not trying to take credit for predicting, okay? If you want to give me credit for predicting, great. If that's why you listen to this show, great. If you want to be way ahead of the mainstream narrative, and you are able to get there by listening to this show, wonderful. But the point I'm ultimately making is that I didn't come up with all these ideas on my own. Some of them I did. Some of my predictions, I'm the first person who said it, as far as I know. And cool when that's the case. But my point is that I got that information that I based my conclusions on from somewhere, which means it was out there, which means other people had access to it too. And so my point ultimately in saying this is, There's actually a way to view the news and to view the information we receive and a way to analyze that information that allows you to bypass the central narrative completely. You should actually be thinking about all the information you know of in a holistic picture and trying to make sure that that holistic picture maps onto the reality that exists around you. And when you're able to look at things holistically, you can see how things connect. And through that, you can have great insight into how you should guide your own life to best look out for yourself, your family, your community, and your country. And the funny thing is that we are steered away from doing that in politics and in public issues because they are all so heavily influenced by the news. And that narrative is so powerful. The reinforcement of that narrative is so powerful. The incentives to reinforce that narrative are so great and the punishments are so severe that it's easier for people to just duck out of their responsibility to be detecting meaning, discerning meaning and looking toward the future in order to make good judgments for their lives. That is a habit. A great number of people in this country have just lost sight of completely. And that makes no sense to me. Imagine you were A money manager. Imagine you were a hedge fund manager. You were in finance. And imagine you had it as a practice not to think about what might happen in the future because you'd be called a conspiracy theorist. And that's all they mean when they say conspiracy theorist. You're taking a set of facts that are obviously connected. You are thinking about what all those facts might mean, and you're thinking about where the story might lead. You determine that there are a number of different options. Where could this go? There's two options, three options, four options. You don't know which one it is, but it's good to consider that they all might be happening and then look out for signs that one or the other, or sometimes both at the same time, or sometimes none of them are happening. But instead, we're taught to ignore all that and just figure things out once the media tells us what we are supposed to know. Anyway, let's get into this article from NPR. These 14 states had significant miscounts in the 2020 census. For the 2020 census, all states were not counted equally well for population numbers used to allocate political representation and federal funding over the next decade, according to a U.S. Census Bureau report released Thursday. A follow-up survey the Bureau conducted to measure the national tallies accuracy found significant net undercount rates in six states, Arkansas, Florida, Illinois, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Texas. It also uncovered significant net overcount rates in eight states, Delaware, Hawaii, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New York, Ohio, Rhode Island, and Utah. For the other 36 states, as well as Washington, D.C., the Bureau did not find statistically significant net over or undercount rates. These revelations come after the population totals from a census beset by the coronavirus pandemic and years of interference from former President Donald Trump's administration have already been used to divvy up seats in the House of Representatives, as well as votes in the Electoral College for the next decade. So once again, sorry, guys, the government messed up, but we're just going to have to deal with it. These are the numbers we gave you? Sure, the numbers are wrong, but you can't do anything about it. We already went through this. So, hey, too late. But you can't get mad at us because it was mostly due to COVID. We messed up counting the census due to COVID, just like they messed up counting the votes in the 2020 election due to COVID. Oh, but it was also Donald Trump's fault. Donald Trump was trying to address the very problem that I was talking about at the beginning of this segment. And for that, he was said to be interfering with the census, which is what threw their counts off in their favor, for sure. No census is perfect. Census Bureau Director Robert Santos warned during a public webinar about the latest results from the post-enumeration survey. And the post enumeration survey allows us to become more informed about the 2020 census by estimating what portion of the population was correctly counted, where we missed people and where some people were counted that shouldn't have been. So basically they're doing an audit, but not a very thorough one. And it's totally internal. And yes, mistakes were made that are all in our favor or mostly in our favor, but we did our best. We are going to create a new agency to have oversight over our agency, but we'll have oversight over that agency too. So it's all good. And everybody should just accept the error, even if it means that Democrat states have more representatives and more electoral votes than they deserve. Hey, them's the brakes. The Supreme Court ruled in 1999 that statistical sampling, which would be needed to factor in the state's over and under count rates, cannot be used to produce the census data for reapportioning Congress. So, yeah, they studied it, but they can't go by the study. They got to go by that original census count. Last year, the House clerk certified each state's new share of House seats based on the 2020 population tallies. The Bureau, however, does plan to use these estimates from its post-enumeration survey in planning for the 2030 census that is already underway. It's a monumental task to count everybody. And this helps us inform how well we do, said Timothy Kennel, assistant division chief for statistical methods during the briefing. It's hard to say exactly why certain states were miscounted, but there may be some clues from NPR. Remember, Census Bureau officials are quick to point out that their report does not get into what caused these net over and undercounts by state. However, Allison Plyer, a former chair of the Bureau's Scientific Advisory Committee, says that Alabama and Georgia not appearing on the list of significantly miscounted southern states could be seen as a telling sign of the effectiveness of census promotion efforts in those states. You got it? Wow. So they're having census promotion efforts. Guess who's guiding those efforts? If you said the Uniparty, you would be correct. A lot of the southern states were hit with disasters, hurricanes, while door-to-door work was going on, says Plyer, who is the chief demographer at the nonprofit The Data Center in New Orleans. But the one thing that states have control over is their own get-out-the-count efforts. In particular, Texas, one of the states with a significant net undercount, stands out to Plyer. We know that Texas invested very little in get out the count. And when they did so, it was very late in the process. So you see, the states all need more funding so they can spend more money trying to get out the count and make sure that they count absolutely everybody. The Bureau has been under pressure to release more quality metrics. Kennel, the Census Bureau official who led the follow-up survey's design, said that the new results were, quote, in line with past censuses, end quote, that had over and under counts among various states. One would think this would be a problem they could resolve. That's what they're telling us. They're going to resolve all of this by 2030. They'll have a better count then. But being wrong is normal, apparently. Still, The 2020 results stand in stark contrast to the findings from the Bureau's follow-up survey for the 2010 census, which had no statistically significant over or undercounts for any state. Concerned about the impact of COVID-19 and the interference by Trump administration officials, many state and local officials, civil rights groups, and other census stakeholders have been pressing for more quality metrics from the Bureau. More data and demographic detail are needed for a full understanding of our communities and who does or does not have access to critical resources, said Mita Anand, Senior Director of Census and Data Equity at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights in a statement. The Census Bureau also needs to be adequately funded to ensure that inequities from inaccurate counts do not persist into 2030 and beyond. And so let's pause right there and head to Influence Watch to learn about the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. The Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights is a civil rights focused left of center organization in Washington, D.C. It serves as an umbrella organization for over 200 mostly left wing organizations which lobby and advocate before Congress and other federal agencies on legislation and presidential appointments to the executive departments and judiciary. Its leadership consists of a committee of members of affiliated organizations that make up its board, which are made up of some of the biggest names on the professional left and the Democratic Party. Former LCCHR executive vice president and chief operating officer Seema Nanda serves as CEO of the Democrat National Committee as of 2018. The organization has recently taken a major role in opposing the appointments and policies of President Donald Trump. It spearheads letter campaigns on behalf of left wing special interest groups and holds rallies to oppose Trump's agenda. And then we can skip down a little bit to their political activism and find some more interesting tidbits of this very reliable civil rights group worthy of being quoted by Our own state media, right? This is NPR. This is the global communist state media in America, literally funded by the government. So we have the infamous Vanita Gupta, who served as the group's president until 2021. She had written an op-ed attacking the U.S. Presidential Advisory Committee on Election Integrity, a Trump administration initiative aimed at countering potential vote fraud. Gupta alleged that, quote, Purging voters is part of a larger malicious pattern that states have employed across the country, she writes. Georgia and Ohio are being sued for carrying out early versions of what we can expect from the Trump administration. So you got that purging voter registries of inactive voters, people who are not allowed to vote legally in elections. That, again, is voter suppression. That's the sort of thing this group works against. And here's a note on the 2020 census. In January 2018, the LCCHR led a left wing lobbying effort to oppose a U.S. Census Bureau proposal that would have reinstated a question requiring respondents to answer whether or not they are U.S. citizens. That, again, was Trump and the Trump administration interfering with the proper count of the census. They also helped organize events in opposition to the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. So it is just a little commie group, always little commie groups quoted by the mainstream state media. And we are expected to see these quotes as a balanced and objective perspective on what is actually happening when this is anything but they went out and got one of the most biased possible observers of the situation and printed their comment. Past counts have shown that census participation and quality of the final numbers can vary greatly between neighborhoods and demographic groups. In March, the Bureau released follow-up survey findings that showed significant national net undercount rates for black people and Latinos, as well as Native Americans living on reservations. The Bureau also found significant national net overcount rates for white people who do not identify as Hispanic and Asian Americans. The statistical agency, however, is not expected to release state level over and undercount rates by race and ethnicity or any rates for counties, cities or towns. Okay, so we'll just trust you. But don't worry if you had that reaction too, well, NPR has a response to that feeling. We are interested in producing the highest quality estimates that people can rely on and trust, and we have to meet our standards and we can't really say anything below the state level. Kennel said during Wednesday's press briefing, noting that the Bureau's plans for the 2020 count did not include producing more detailed metrics as it had in the past. On Thursday, Kennel added that the Bureau is exploring the possibility of releasing additional national level metrics about more specific demographic groups, such as racial groups by age or sex. Oh, thank goodness they're going to make those numbers up. I'm not going to commit to anything at this point, but we're definitely looking into that, Kennel said. To try to ameliorate the effects of over and undercounts, the Bureau has set up an internal team that plans to research how to factor the follow-up survey's results into the Bureau's population estimates, which, along with census data, help guide the distribution of an estimated $1.5 trillion a year in federal money to local communities. So everything's just fine with the census, according to the communists. Everything is working exactly as planned. In fact, we're going to grow our governmental organization and make it even bigger. I was going to say better, but not better, just bigger. They're going to expand the bureaucracy because they themselves have created a problem that clearly needs fixing. So how will you fix it by doing your job better? No, by hiring more people, expanding the bureaucracy this way, we can say, Well, this was our first census with this new part of our expanded bureaucracy, and there's still some fine-tuning to do. So the 2040 census promises to be the most accurate ever. Yes, we have problems, but if you increase our funding and add employees, we might make a few steps toward fixing them within the next 20 years. But in the meantime, we have given the Democrats... An undeserved advantage in the Congress and an undeserved advantage in the Electoral College. COVID strikes again. Changing subjects without a segue, although still on the topic of the Democrats trying to destroy the United States of America and its Constitution. This is from the Daily Wire. Senate Democrats introduced bill requiring a federal firearms license to buy and own a gun. Democrat senators have introduced new gun control legislation that would, among other things, institute a federal license requirement to buy a gun. Democratic New Jersey senators Bob Menendez and Cory Booker and Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal introduced the Federal Firearm Licensing Act Thursday. The bill would institute a requirement for gun purchasers to obtain a firearms license through the Department of Justice before buying or receiving a gun. The text of the bill states in part, it shall be unlawful for any individual to purchase or receive a firearm unless the individual has a valid federal firearm license. Now you can clearly see that is obviously already in direct violation of the second amendment. And it's not like they don't know that when they write it. They are looking to have this battle in public, they are looking to try to pass this thing and then just let the courts maybe throw it out. But who knows? Maybe they'll stack the courts by then. They don't care about the Constitution. If laws like this are even proposed, you should know immediately that the people proposing them do not care about the Constitution. They do not care about your rights as an American. They do not care about your rights as a human. They do not care about you as a human. They care about disarming the citizenry. And when people respond to this stuff and say, they're not trying to take your guns. That's so crazy. That's not what they're trying to do. Uh, yeah, it is. That's like seeing the Daily Mail article about how Elon Musk supposedly sexually harassed someone and exposed himself. Seven years ago, it comes out the day after he calls the Democratic Party, the party of division and hate. He just gets bombed with some random flimsy me too" claim from years and years ago, the day after you see that news and you're like, oh, well, they're clearly trying to attack Elon Musk's character and cancel him so that he stops doing things that hurt the global communists in the eyes of the public. And some liberal is like, that's not what they're trying to do. It's just really important to tell this woman's story. It's true. Believe all women. Destroying Elon Musk is not the end goal. That's a conspiracy theory. Everything has to be looked at as if it doesn't connect to anything else. They take everything and segment it. And then they reinterpret the small thing. So that it no longer fits in the pattern that it obviously is part of. That is the reinterpretation of reality. You do that over and over and over again, and then no belief that the child brains hold actually has any attachment to empirical reality. And that's how they get away with the step by step destruction of everything that is America. Having people go onto a DOJ approved registry to be able to purchase a gun is infringing on the people's right to bear arms. And it's worth mentioning that this is the same DOJ who's busy calling all of their political opponents domestic terrorists. Back to the Daily Wire. The bill then outlines the procedure for establishing the license under the Department of Justice, directing the attorney general to establish a system for issuing them. Oh, so it's Merrick Garland's decision. In order to be eligible to obtain the license itself, a prospective licensee must first complete a firearm safety course, which includes a written test to demonstrate knowledge of applicable firearms laws and hands-on testing, including firing testing, to demonstrate safe use and sufficient accuracy of a firearm. After that, the licensee must pass a federal background check and a criminal history, submit proof of identification, fingerprints, information about the firearm, The licensee intends to buy or obtain, including the make, model and serial number and the identity of the firearm seller or transfer. And apparently all that we're told by communists is actually easier than getting an abortion. Yeah, commie, I read your sign as Booker noticed in a press release. The federal background check and ID check would require the licensee to be at least 21 years old, effectively raising the legal age of gun ownership to 21. Under the law, the attorney general would have to approve or deny applications within 30 days and notify state and local officials of every application. If approved, licenses would be made available at a designated local office. Each individual license would be valid to buy one firearm to be purchased within 30 days of issuance. The licenses would expire five years after the issuance date. The law would also allow the attorney general to deny or revoke the license of anyone he deems, quote, poses a significant danger of bodily injury to self or others by possessing, purchasing or receiving a firearm, end quote. The bill also includes a provision in which the law would not apply in states that have licensing processes with substantially similar requirements. And this is the sort of thing that the false flags are for. Again, saying something's a false flag doesn't mean that you are challenging the realness of the event. The event can happen. It's how it's used that matters. And so the shootings over the weekend, by the way, which were both done by leftists, And could both be qualified as hate crimes? Well, that's gone out the window. They don't want to talk about the details of the events anymore. The Southern California shooting, that's not even talked about at all. They're still going to try with the Buffalo thing because that was at least a white person. And they can claim that white supremacy is happening somewhere else besides on the left. But you can see that these events were immediately used as a PR basis for this new attempted gun grab. They want all the control to be in the DOJ, the same DOJ that calls parents of school kids, domestic terrorists that calls people who want to review the 2020 election because of the obvious and overwhelming evidence of fraud. Well, they're domestic terrorists too. anybody that says the wrong things online. Well, We're told that creates real-world violence, so that would be a basis for denying gun ownership as well. But the left will say, the whole country supports legislation like this to reduce mass shootings. They're not trying to take guns away. If you're not a domestic terrorist, what are you worried about? I'm worried about giving the government that no one in their right mind should ever trust at all, the power to decide who gets guns and who doesn't in direct violation to the constitution. That's actually a problem. It doesn't matter that a liberal can defend this little step on some ridiculous basis, like that it's necessary. We need to fix the problem. So therefore this, well, if there's a problem, convince everybody that the problem is real, then take a range of options to everybody that all comport with the United States Constitution, which is the law of the land, and then figure out how the problem could effectively be solved in accordance with that Constitution. And if it turns out that the Constitution just simply doesn't allow you any of your communist options, well, then you're out of luck. That's how it's supposed to work. In addition, the bill makes it illegal to transfer a gun to any person without first being transferred to a licensed importer, manufacturer, or dealer. It also makes it illegal to sell or transfer a gun to an unlicensed person. In the Thursday press release, the three senators cited the mass shooting in Buffalo last weekend as the reason for pushing the legislation. And they must have just written it in the last four days. Isn't that amazing that they could have written all this legislation so fast? Gosh, incredible. You know, there's that event and then they have to react. So they wrote this whole legislation in four days. A gunman killed 10 people and wounded three others at a grocery store in the city Saturday, allegedly targeting the store because of racial animus, as the Daily Wire reported. This is the moment to enact ambitious legislation. As a nation, we must rise to it or we are fated to witness the deadly scenes of this past weekend and years past over again said Booker. We have a moral obligation to prevent these senseless massacres in our schools, supermarkets, places of worship and shopping malls that are tearing communities and families apart, added Menendez, calling on Republicans to pass the bill. And if we can't trust Cory Booker's assessment of violent hate crimes, whose judgment can we trust? I mean, he nailed the uh, Jussie Smollett thing, right? He knew everything about that case. He was so thoroughly knowledgeable about that case, it's like he set the whole thing up himself with Kamala Harris and Jussie Smollett. And it turns out that's exactly what happened. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was actually Monday of last week, I went through an article by Thomas Friedman in the New York Times that I said was the first indication to me that the mainstream narrative on Ukraine was shifting. The Ukraine narrative, the Ukraine project failed, and they need to move. Now, of course, they still decided to saddle the American taxpayer with $40 billion more of debt so that they could send into the black hole money pit that is Ukraine, and then that money will disappear to whoever needs a payoff. But the Ukraine thing just isn't working out. And this is the New York Times from yesterday. This is the editorial board of the New York Times. So very, very highbrow stuff here. The war in Ukraine is getting complicated and America isn't ready. The Senate passed a $40 billion emergency aid package for Ukraine on Thursday, but with a small group of isolationist Republicans loudly criticizing the spending and the war entering a new and complicated phase, continued bipartisan support is not guaranteed. Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, warned the Senate Armed Services Committee recently that the next few months may be volatile. The conflict between Ukraine and Russia could take, quote, a more unpredictable and potentially escalatory trajectory, she said, with the increased likelihood that Russia could threaten to use nuclear weapons. I thought they've been threatening to use nuclear weapons for months. We keep getting told about a Russian threat to go nuclear every week or two. It's ridiculous. These are extraordinary costs and serious dangers, and yet there are many questions that President Biden has yet to answer for the American public with regard to the continued involvement of the United States in this conflict. In March, this board argued that the message from the United States and its allies to Ukrainians and Russians alike must be no matter how long it takes, Ukraine will be free. Ukraine deserves support against Russia's unprovoked aggression, and the United States must lead its NATO allies in demonstrating to Vladimir Putin that the Atlantic Alliance is willing and able to resist his revanchist ambitions. And of course, the editorial board was very astute back then. They had all the priorities right. They knew exactly what the country needed. That goal cannot shift, but in the end, it is still not in America's best interest to plunge into an all out war with Russia, even if a negotiated peace may require Ukraine to make some hard decisions. And the U.S. aims and strategy in this war have become harder to discern as the parameters of the mission appear to have changed. Oh, so now you can't tell what the U.S.'s goal in Ukraine is? Before, it was that we had to defend their sovereign borders. Then it was that we had to stand with the brave Ukrainian citizens. Then it was that we had to remove Putin from power. And then it was that we had to weaken the Russian military. And now it's just that we don't want Russia to expand any further. But we still don't know. And how much is in the U.S. interest? No one has any idea because it was never in the U.S. interest in the first place, which is why they always lied about the goals. And now it turns out that for a negotiated peace, Ukraine might have to make some concessions. It's so interesting that Ukraine might begin making these concessions right after we gave them 40 billion dollars to keep their silly little war going. In the United States, for example, trying to help bring an end to this conflict through a settlement that would allow for a sovereign Ukraine and maybe some kind of relationship between the United States and Russia. I don't know, like at least like maybe pen pals. I don't know, but we have to repair the relationship somehow. I mean, all these world leaders won't even... Except Joe Biden's phone calls, even though he's totally the very real president of the United States of America and not just a an illegitimate usurper. Or is the United States now trying to weaken Russia permanently? Has the administration's goal shifted to destabilizing Vladimir Putin or having him removed? Oh, you mean those two goals that I just mentioned that you guys have already mentioned for months? Yeah. Yeah. Does the United States intend to hold Mr. Putin accountable as a war criminal? Oh, that other thing you talked about. Well, no. Or is the goal to try to avoid a wider war? And if so, how does crowing about providing U.S. intelligence to kill Russians and sink one of their ships achieve this? Oh, my goodness. It looks like there's no cohesive plan by the fake administration whatsoever. It's like they don't have any foreign intelligence. It's like they don't have any foreign policy. It's like there's this sort of separation between the fake administration and the rest of the global community. They just don't seem to have the legitimate power of prior administrations, including and especially the Donald Trump administration that actually had the ability to bend global foreign policy to its will. And this is one of the many communist inversions. This is the bizarro world. This is the false reality where Donald Trump was not taken seriously in foreign affairs and the adults are back in the room. The fake president is a joke and our elite media outlets that are supporting this nonsense are a joke as well. And leading all of them, of course, is this very publication, The New York Times. Without clarity on these questions, the White House not only risks losing Americans' interest in supporting Ukrainians who continue to suffer the loss of lives and livelihoods, but also jeopardizes long-term peace and security on the European continent. And that, my friends, is an admission that the mainstream central narrative is failing. The official story on Ukraine has failed. People are not responding to it anymore. Narrative shifts. Happen when the narrative fails. We talked about that this week in the total lack of support for Nina Jankowicz. The administration didn't back her up. That was the claim by Taylor Lorenz in the Washington Post. But the truth is, the public didn't back her up because the public knows that's nonsense. The Buffalo Shooter narrative is disappearing. Why? Because the public didn't buy it. And now the Ukrainian narrative is failing because the public doesn't buy it. The story is incoherent. The mainstream media is not equipped to keep up with independent media and the flow of information across alternative platforms and sources. And it's worth noting that that fact alone should be a source of faith for people on our side. There is no narrative they can attempt that we cannot destroy on a very short and shrinking timeline. And you will see that again in how thoroughly the monkeypox narrative fails. And I'll get into that in a little bit. Americans have been galvanized by Ukraine's suffering, but popular support for a war far from U.S. shores will not continue indefinitely. Inflation is a much bigger issue for American voters than Ukraine, and the disruptions to global food and energy markets are likely to intensify. The current moment is a messy one in this conflict, which may explain President Biden and his cabinet's reluctance to put down clear goalposts. All the more reason, then, for Mr. Biden to make the case to American voters well before November that support for Ukraine means support for democratic values and the right of countries to defend themselves against aggression. While peace and security remain the ideal outcome in this war. So basically, the New York Times is encouraging a plan of our actually pulling back from the Ukraine situation and then refocusing people's idea of what constitutes support, simply speaking out in favor of democratic values and the rights of countries to defend themselves. So the idea is that the child brains will feel good about continuing to support Ukraine in the abstract, while the actual support for What we've been referring to as this war in Ukraine evaporates completely and vanishes from the public's view. It is tempting to see Ukraine's stunning successes against Russia's aggression as a sign that with sufficient American and European help, Ukraine is pushing Russia back to its positions before the invasion. But that is a dangerous assumption. Well, it's an especially dangerous assumption to make because. None of the premises are true. Ukraine has not had stunning successes against Russia anywhere, not anywhere. That is a completely made up narrative. It is total nonsense. A decisive military victory for Ukraine over Russia, in which Ukraine regains all the territory Russia has seized since 2014, is not a realistic goal. And they're talking about Crimea there about Ukraine trying to recapture Crimea, that is never going to happen. And there is no opportunity for Ukraine to have decisive military victories over Russia in any place. There is no reason to believe that is a possibility, even a remote possibility, which is why so much of the Ukraine Russia narrative has been complete and utter bullshit. The United States and NATO are already deeply involved militarily and economically. Unrealistic expectations could draw them even deeper into a costly, drawn out war. Russia, however battered and inept, is still capable of inflicting untold destruction on Ukraine and is still a nuclear superpower with an aggrieved, volatile despot who has shown little inclination toward a negotiated settlement. Ukraine and Russia now appear further apart than at any other point in the nearly three month long war, as the Times reported. Now, again, none of that is true. Russia has had its terms of withdrawal on the table since the very beginning, demilitarize and denazify Ukraine and the ethnic civil war being waged by one of the most corrupt states in the world with neo-Nazis in their government against the ethnic Russian areas of Eastern Ukraine, leaving the Donbass independent, accept the situation in Crimea and don't join NATO or the EU. That has always been the situation from the very beginning. And this article has already admitted that a negotiated peace would require Ukraine giving up things to Russia. It's not the other way around. Russia's military is battered and inept. Well, then what is Ukraine's military? Ukraine's military made up of, we're told, very brave Ukrainian citizens, but actually neo-Nazis and foreign mercenaries using U.S. armaments and supplies and U.S. intelligence to wage this quote unquote war. Recent bellicose statements from Washington, President Biden's assertion that Mr. Putin cannot remain in power, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's comment that Russia must be weakened and the pledge by the U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that the United States would support Ukraine, quote, until victory is won, end quote, may be rousing proclamations of support, but they do not bring negotiations any closer. In the end, it is the Ukrainians who must make the hard decisions. They are the ones fighting, dying and losing their homes to Russian aggression. And it is they who must decide what an end to the war might look like. If the conflict does lead to real negotiations, it will be Ukrainian leaders who will have to make the painful territorial decisions that any compromise will demand. And that right there should be seen as an admission of defeat by the global communists through their state media. A week ago, they were telling us that Ukraine must win. Now, any compromise will demand Ukraine ceding their territory to Russia. The United States and NATO have demonstrated that they will support the Ukrainian fight with ample firepower and other means. And however the fighting ends, the United States and its allies must be prepared to help Ukraine rebuild. No, we actually must not do that. That should not be our responsibility at all. But it is a good way to keep sending money to Ukraine forever. But as the war continues, Mr. Biden should also make clear to President Volodymyr Zelensky and his people that there is a limit to how far the United States and NATO will go to confront Russia and limits to the arms, money, and political support they can muster. It is imperative that the Ukrainian government's decisions be based on a realistic assessment of its means and how much more destruction Ukraine can sustain. Well, that's very strange for a country that is absolutely dominating Russia militarily. They're achieving all these stunning successes. But somehow something went wrong? The New York Times is giving its child-brained audience the amount of empirical reality that they are forced to insert in the story. And they are also giving them the idea that that empirical reality is not true. There is ample support within this article for the idea that none of the stated goals for which people were hashtag standing with Ukraine can possibly be achieved. And at the same time, they are still claiming across the board success, especially in their very righteous motivations. Confronting this reality may be painful, but it is not appeasement. This is what governments are duty bound to do, not chase after an illusory win. Russia will be feeling the pain of isolation and debilitating economic sanctions for years to come, and Mr. Putin will go down in history as a butcher. The challenge now is to shake off the euphoria, stop the taunting, and focus on defining and completing the mission. America's support for Ukraine is a test of its place in the world in the 21st century, and Mr. Biden has an opportunity and an obligation to help define what that will be. So Russia is isolated and debilitated by what the sanctions, the sanctions that didn't work at all. The ruble is stronger than it was before. Russia has currency alliances with the BRICS organization, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. That represents half the world's population. They're going to be just fine. They've also opened up new trade partnerships with those countries and others. And they've also removed themselves from the central bank and they retain leverage over European energy supplies. Russia is neither debilitated nor isolated. This is a comical farce, but they still have to tell the child brains it was all worth it. Putin will be remembered as a butcher. He's going to go down in history as a butcher, a history which they plan to write, by the way, because history is written by the winners, is it not? And the U.S. doesn't want to be bogged down in creating an illusory win. You get that? There's no win possible for the United States. So what we need to do is commit to rebuilding Ukraine forever. And hopefully at some point, Russia will be weakened, or at least will pretend they are. This is the highbrow, elitist, intellectual, winding back of a completely and totally failed narrative where they have defended waging economic warfare against the citizens of other countries, overt acts of war against nuclear armed adversaries in countries we have no alliance with. The sending of tens of billions of dollars to that same country and really just to global communists and the alignment with actual Nazis. And that's not even to mention all of the propaganda and the cover up of the lab stuff. This is a narrative disaster. And this whole situation was supposed to be the crown jewel of this whole plan. Now, I want to talk about the monkeypox thing, but I don't want to just skip over the fact that the Durham trial against Michael Sussman has been going on throughout the week, and even CNN has been forced to report one of the developments today. This is their headline, and it's worth checking out the coverage of this issue. You don't need to obviously go to CNN, but... The point here is that the most mainstream possible outlets still cannot avoid this. Hillary Clinton personally approved plan to share Trump Russia allegation with the press in 2016, campaign manager says her campaign manager from 2016, Robbie Mook, had to testify today that Hillary Clinton was aware that these flimsy allegations that made up the Russia hoax were flimsy. And that she went forward with the campaign tactic anyway. And of course, this is something that we have known, but to have her campaign manager admit it in court and have the mainstream media be forced to report it, that's a win. It will be a bigger win when the public realizes what this issue actually is. It's the Democrat Communist Party's candidate for president in 2016, setting up this grand hoax using the FBI and the CIA, all of this done with Barack Obama and Joe Biden's knowledge. And none of them said a thing about the fact that one of the biggest campaign issues in 2016 was a complete and total lie. They tried to undermine the American election in 2016. They kept it going through the transition period, and they continued spying on Donald Trump in the executive office of the White House while he was president. All of that is treason. And the win will come when the American public recognizes it as such. Hopefully, we are on the road to that. And I am sure that I will be coming back to this issue many times in the coming weeks. So let's go to monkeypox. This is from today in the Daily Mail. FDA approved smallpox drug also believed to be able to treat monkeypox as global cases of the rare virus grow in the U.S. and Europe. So this is the new scary event. Maybe this will be the pandemic that changes the outcome of the November 2022 election. Nancy Pelosi was just saying in her little press briefing yesterday that she doesn't even consider the possibility that the Democrats might lose the House in 2022. That means she is extremely confident in their election fraud system remaining in place so they can still get the House majority. That is what she is saying, because there is no other support for that notion beyond election fraud. There is no reason to believe Democrats can win elections anywhere. The Democrat Communist Party now has like 25% approval among Hispanics. Everyone can see through this nonsense. No one approves of it anymore. It's an absolute joke. So I want to go through this article a bit. The Food and Drug Administration has approved a new drug for monkeypox treatment as cases of the rare virus have now been detected in 11 countries, including the U.S. and the U.K. Sega Technologies, based in New York City, announced Friday morning it had received the regulatory green light for an IV formulation of T-pox, two X's, a smallpox drug that was already available in oral form. The company notes that in Europe, the drug is officially approved as a monkeypox treatment as many smallpox drugs are because of the similarity of the viruses. The drug is added to doctor's arsenal as the rare yet potentially devastating virus continues to spread around the world, having been confirmed or suspected in dozens of cases in 11 countries across Europe and North America. Those cases include a Massachusetts man who became the first confirmed case of the virus in the U.S. this year on Wednesday. Thursday night, officials in New York City announced they were probing a suspected monkeypox case as well. T-pox is now approved for use across Europe, the U.S. and Canada, the three spots where monkeypox has been most active outside of Africa. Siga also notes in a statement that President Joe Biden has recently made a budget request to use the drug to treat the emerging virus, meaning it is set to become one of the primary treatments for the virus in the U.S. There are no specifically formulated drugs available for monkeypox, though physicians will often use smallpox drugs off-label to treat the rare virus. Oh, man, that's so crazy. Why can't we use off-label treatments to treat coronavirus like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin? Oh, we're told that you can't use off-label treatments for these very important viruses. What happened? There is an available vaccine for the virus though it has little coverage in the United States. The virus is common in Central and Western Africa. Cross-species transmission from animals to humans is possible through physical contact. An infected person will often suffer rashes and infectious lesions on their skin, along with other flu-like symptoms. It is mostly found in Nigeria, though there was a 40-year period without a single reported case before it re-emerged in the African nation in 2017. I wonder how that happened. In typical outbreaks, around one in 10 cases are fatal, though some experts believe the mortality risk of the strain currently making its way across the world is as low as only 1%. So they're trying to say that's not a big deal, but a 1% fatality rate, if they're talking about infection fatality, is actually 10 times higher than COVID. So very dangerous. But they're not making it sound very dangerous because this is just a warm up. And I'm going to skip around because I just want to hit a couple more paragraphs here. Monkeypox typically spreads through close body contact. Dr. Amesh Adalja, an infectious disease expert at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, explained to the Daily Mail. And Adalja is someone that I've kept an eye on for over two years now he did a podcast, actually two podcasts with Sam Harris, right as the whole coronavirus thing was starting. And he talked about how low the fatality rate was. He talked about the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine in those interviews. You can hear them on Sam Harris's podcast. I think it was March 11th and March 13th of 2020, or maybe March 11th and March 12th. Just look right in there. Sam Harris's podcast. You can find it. Listen to the things he said about coronavirus. And then If you feel like it, if you can endure it, skip a year forward in Sam Harris's podcast and see what he believed then about coronavirus, because the things that Adalja said before we had the big pandemic were actually in complete conflict with the narrative that we were forced to adopt by the news as the pandemic wore on. Kind of like the way Anthony Fauci admitted that masks don't work at all before changing his mind and saying, yes, masks are actually very effective. And then here is one more piece to notice. There was initial speculation that there could be a sexual transmission factor at play during this outbreak, as many people who initially tested positive for the rare virus were gay or bisexual men. Oh, that's interesting. It sounds just like the narrative about AIDS in the 80s and early 90s. And what a strange occurrence while we're also finding out that the COVID vaccine destroys your immune system, giving you vaccine-acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. And that's something you might want to keep in mind when we start hearing that it's not the vaccine that caused all the vaccinated to have AIDS, it's the monkeys and the gays. Are you ready for AIDS 2.0? Now, on the subject of monkeypox, Simon Goddick dropped this document on Telegram today. This is from an organization called NTI, the Nuclear Threat Initiative. This is from November 2021, and the document's headline is Strengthening Global Systems to Prevent and Respond to High Consequence Biological Threats. Results from the 2021 tabletop exercise conducted in partnership with the Munich Security Conference. Okay, and I'm going to go through a little bit of this document. This is what they are doing. This is not the media reporting. This is a direct source document about this exercise. Summary. In March 2021, NTI partnered with the Munich Security Conference to conduct a tabletop exercise on reducing high-consequence biological threats. The exercise examined gaps in national and international biosecurity and pandemic preparedness architectures, exploring opportunities to improve prevention and response capabilities for high-consequence biological events. This report summarizes the exercise scenario, key findings from the discussion, and actionable recommendations for the international community. And it's worth noting right off the bat that one of the people who participated in this tabletop exercise is Sir Jeremy Farrar, director of Wellcome Trust. So big pharma. And he's also one of the people who was revealed in Anthony Fauci's emails to have been directly involved with trying to obscure and cover up the lab origins of COVID-19, so someone you can trust. The document is 36 pages long, so I can't go through all of it on the podcast, obviously, but here's the executive summary. In March 2021, the Nuclear Threat Initiative partnered with the Munich Security Conference to conduct a tabletop exercise on reducing high-consequence biological threats. Conducted virtually, the exercise examined gaps in national and international biosecurity and pandemic preparedness architectures and explored opportunities to improve capabilities to prevent and respond to high-consequence biological events. Participants included 19 senior leaders and experts from across Africa, the Americas, Asia, and Europe, with decades of combined experience in public health, biotechnology industry, international security, and philanthropy. The exercise scenario portrayed a deadly global pandemic involving an unusual strain of monkeypox virus that emerged in the fictional nation of Brinia and spread globally over 18 months. Ultimately, the exercise scenario revealed that the initial outbreak was caused by a terrorist attack using a pathogen engineered in a laboratory with inadequate biosafety and biosecurity provisions and weak oversight. By the end of the exercise, the fictional pandemic resulted in more than three billion cases and 270 million fatalities worldwide. So that would be a 9% case fatality rate. And man, that Daily Mail article just hinted that it could be 10% or maybe even lower, as low as 1%. But you might as well go with 9% because that is way scarier. Discussion among exercise participants led to the following key findings. Weak global detection, assessment, and warning of pandemic risks. The international community needs a more robust Transparent detection, evaluation and early warning system that can rapidly communicate actionable information about pandemic risks, centralize, globalize gaps in national level preparedness, national governments should improve preparedness by developing national-level pandemic response plans built upon a coherent system of triggers that prompt anticipatory action despite uncertainty and near-term costs. In other words, on a no-regrets basis. That is like the extreme version of better safe than sorry, which is why we were told we must lock down, we must wear masks, we must take the experimental gene therapy better safe than sorry. Are we sure there's going to be any positive benefit? No. Are we sure that there's going to be a negative impact for sure? Yes. But we don't have any other plan and the disease must stop now. So we must anticipate that these mitigation steps that we know will have a negative effect and have no guarantee of a positive effect are still our best bet. And so it is safest to try them. We have to ignore the impacts and ignore the high probability of no success. That is actually what it says here, despite uncertainty and near-term costs. Gaps in biological research governance. The international system for governing dual use biological research is neither prepared to meet today's security requirements, nor is it ready for significantly expanded challenges in the future. There are risk reduction needs throughout the bioscience research and development lifecycle. Insufficient financing of international preparedness for pandemics. Many countries around the world lack financing to make essential national investments in pandemic preparedness. So give all the world organizations more power and more money and do whatever they say on the basis of better safe than sorry, a no regrets basis. Oh man, in the future, we don't want to say that we really wish we would have tried masking with cloth masks that we know don't work. Man, what would our children think of us for doing something so stupid? Yeah, if only you actually took that notion seriously, commies. I swear today, very low sample size, obviously, anecdotal, obviously, but I saw more people out and about with masks on today. Rising COVID cases in New York, we are told, and the whole monkey pox thing. Well, you better put the mask back on better safe than sorry. Got to set a good example for everyone else. To address these findings, the authors developed the following recommendations. Bolster international systems for pandemic risk assessment, warning and investigating outbreak origins. The WHO should establish a graded, transparent international public health alert system. Oh, that's the same organization that told us human transmission of COVID didn't happen. The United Nations system should establish a new mechanism for investigating high-consequence biological events of unknown origin, which we refer to as a joint assessment mechanism. Develop and institute national-level triggers for early, proactive pandemic response. National governments must adopt a no-regrets approach to pandemic response, taking anticipatory action as opposed to reacting to mounting cases and fatalities, which are lagging indicators. To facilitate anticipatory action on a no regrets basis, national governments should develop national level plans that define and incorporate triggers for responding to high consequence biological events. That means they're going to have their little landmarks. Whenever we hit a certain number of cases, now we're in the orange zone. We're going to have to turn things up. Now we're in the red zone. We're going to have to turn things up again. We're going to decide which zones are yellow, orange, and red, and we will use them however we see fit. When they say transparency, are they talking about transparency with the public? No, they are talking about transparency between individual world governments and the international governing bodies. What they want is a closed loop information system, and they want the ability for the decisions made within that system to govern every person around the world, which is what they're trying to instill next week. At the meetings of these globalist organizations and with the new WHO pandemic treaty. Establish an international entity dedicated to reducing emerging biological risks associated with rapid technology advances. Oh, man, I was under the strange impression that our government actually cared enough about that to be doing it on its own. Nope. Got to have an international organization. So let's build more bureaucracies. The international community should establish an entity dedicated to reducing the risk of catastrophic events due to accidents or deliberate abuse of bioscience and biotechnology. Isn't that strange that you could abuse their very important research? Gosh, they even mentioned it above dual use research huh? to meaningfully reduce risk. The entity should support interventions throughout the bioscience and biotechnology research and development lifecycle from funding through execution. And on to publication or commercialization, which means everything must be regulated by them. They want to have a monopoly on not only the development of these viruses and the strengthening of these viruses through dual use research of concern. They also demand a monopoly on governing power in response. And of course, a monopoly on treatments, which you must take. Develop a catalytic global health security fund to accelerate pandemic preparedness capacity building in countries around the world. National leaders, development banks, philanthropic donors, and the private sector should establish and resource a new financing mechanism to bolster global health security and pandemic preparedness. And understand, by the way, that what they are referring to is the World Economic Forum and its partners. National leaders, development banks, philanthropic donors, and of course they mean people like Bill Gates and George Soros, and the private sector. Okay, so all of those entities all are aligned with the World Economic Forum. They fall under the World Economic Forum umbrella. They are partner organizations to the World Economic Forum. Go on weforum dot org. And Look for their partners. You will find their partners. You will find most of the largest transnational organizations in the world, along with governments, along with organizations like the National Governors Association. You will find their philanthropic partners and then go look at their code of conduct that says they all must align with the same agenda and not speak out against that agenda. And with that knowledge, you can see very clearly that pandemic response is yet another mechanism to bring more power concentrated under the control of these same international organizations. The design and operations of the fund should be catalytic, incentivizing national governments to invest in their own preparedness over the long term. Now, what that means, of course, is that money must be able to spark the process that leads to the desired outcomes, which means they need to financially incentivize the people who can put these structures into place and then execute them. That means they will be paying off politicians and lobbyists. They will be funding NGOs. They will be doing all the things these world organizations do so that representatives of individual countries are more likely to hand off control to the international organizations. And think about the information you can now access and understand, right? Our eyes weren't on these things years ago. Some people's were all credit to those people. I was behind the curve, no doubt about it, which is why I'm making a conscious effort to make up for that in every way I can. But consider the point we have reached. A few years ago, the World Economic Forum, this international one world global communist order, all of that was a big conspiracy theory. And then it turned out not to be a conspiracy theory at all. We can actually educate ourselves about the structure of these organizations and the formation and who's involved with them. We know what their goals are because they clearly state them. Klaus Schwab writes these books. COVID-19, The Great Reset, a book written by Klaus Schwab, not a conspiracy theory. Stakeholder Capitalism, a book written by Klaus Schwab, not a conspiracy theory stakeholder capitalism is fascism. What you just heard described as the organization they are trying to build to respond to pandemics, ostensibly, is fascism. They want an alliance of governments, corporations, international bodies, and the richest, most powerful people in the world. It is right in your face. And when you read these sorts of plans, you can see how these things come together. All of what I have read to you so far is an outline by which pandemics are used to increase the power of global communists. And I want to go through just a bit more of this. This is the section with the headline exercise scenario. Developed in consultation with technical and policy experts, the exercise scenario portrayed a deadly global pandemic involving an unusual strain of monkeypox virus that first emerges in the fictional country of Brynia and eventually spreads globally. Later in the exercise, the scenario reveals that the initial outbreak was caused by a terrorist attack using a pathogen engineered in a laboratory with inadequate biosafety and biosecurity provisions and weak oversight. So you got to understand, it's not the research that was a problem. There just wasn't enough government and organizational control. There wasn't enough regulation, enough oversight, and mistakes were made. Again, the exercise scenario concludes with more than 3 billion cases and 270 million fatalities globally. As part of the scenario development process, NTI conducted a virtual consultation with experts in December, 2020. The exercise was designed for participants to, and there's some bullet points here, discuss requirements for international architectures related to science-based early assessment of emerging pandemic risks and timely international warning and alerts for pen for potential pandemics. And let me just reiterate this. Okay. They're saying that this virus was developed in a lab. Mistakes were made. So the virus got out and they are saying just like with COVID trust us. We are the best people to control this. Trust the science, follow the experts, follow the science, trust the experts. We would never steer you wrong. And of course it is the fault of the science, science that we fund and support. It's the fault of the science that this virus exists in the first place. But once again, trust us, this is madness. Okay. This is madness. COVID-19 was not in any way a scientific success. In fact, it was one of the greatest, if not the greatest scientific failure in human history. Now, the scientists themselves might think all of that was great because they learned so much. They finally got to test their little experiments on the whole wide world. And look what happened. Oh, such a small number of people died relative to how many we thought it was going to be and everybody just applauds like circus seals. Oh, 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 the science. Idiots. The science is the problem. Now, I'm not saying that all science is a problem, and I'm not saying that all scientists are a problem. In fact, good science is what allowed us to steer ourselves out of the problem. And good scientists will emerge as heroes of this time and hopefully the pioneers that can steer science back into a good place. But this is still the greatest scientific failure ever. The scientists created the problem. The scientists then lied about the problem. The scientists then lied about the solutions while people were dying. The scientists actually caused the death of people And to respond to all of it, they decided that they hadn't experimented enough, so they wanted to take experimental vaccine technology, that actually isn't vaccine technology at all, and it is in fact only experimental gene therapy, and inject it into millions and millions and millions of people all across the world, knowing that it would eventually cause their immune systems to deteriorate, their hearts to be weakened, and for them to die much quicker than they would have otherwise. That's what the science did. And sorry, good scientists, you got to own it. It is actually your responsibility to root out the bad scientists and put science back on its right, right path. And thankfully, again, some of these people should be honored and revered because they are doing that. But the reputational cost to their institution is going to be enormous and it's going to be lasting because what you can see in those institutions is the same as what you can see in all other institutions. It's a very, very tiny percentage of people who are both ethical enough and brave enough to stand up and speak the truth. And likewise, I'm not claiming that it's the vast majority of scientists who are engaged in overt evil, but the vast majority of scientists sat silent as overt evil was committed by their peers with their knowledge. That's a stain that's not just going to wash off. But back to these bullet points. Explore conditions that should trigger national pandemic response actions and discuss strategies and challenges for scaling public health interventions. And it seems the most important condition that might trigger a pandemic response action is the presence of an American election. Consider options to reduce biotechnology risks and strengthen oversight of dual use bioscience research. Here's the option. Stop it all. How about that? stop it all. We actually don't need that research. That research has not cured or prevented any pandemic and it has started them. End of story. Done. No more of that. How about that? That's the right response. Explore opportunities to strengthen international financing mechanisms to bolster global health security preparedness. Yes, they want more ability to shuffle money around. The discussion was organized into three sequential moves corresponding with scenario developments followed by a roundtable discussion of broader biosecurity and pandemic preparedness issues. The step-by-step approach to revealing scenario developments reflected the limitations of information available to real world decision makers, as well as the resulting uncertainty associated with a pandemic of unknown origin. So they have simultaneously set up that they know the origin. The origin was a lab, right? Right with inadequate biosecurity and inadequate oversight. And they know it was spread through a terrorist event. So why would they be studying something with unknown origin? They're going to present both so that they can avoid blaming it on themselves again. And that's why monkeypox is so perfect, by the way, because we think of it as coming from monkeys. So you can't blame a human. The lab origin theory, well, that's just going to be suspect the whole time. No one's ever going to really know. And apparently it passes through sexual contact, primarily among gays. And then, oh, there was that thing about the whole monkey truck crashing a couple of months ago. You guys remember that? I talked about it on the podcast. I said, hey, keep an eye on this. And here you go. Now, this is the last part of this I want to highlight for now because I have not gone through the entire document yet. This is page 12, okay? Figure one, scenario design summary, all right? Move one. The scenario is a monkeypox outbreak in Brinia. 1,421 cases, four deaths. No international warnings or advisories. The key issues are international alert and warning systems and benefits of and need for early risk assessment. Now, there are a couple interesting dates that coincide with move one. First, the attack and that's what they call it, is May 15th, 2022. My, my, my. That was five days ago. Someone should look up what's happening in the fictional country of Brinia. And then move one officially is on June 5th, 2022. And that's a little over two weeks from now. I wonder what's going to happen that day. Is the whole world going to know that we have a, a global pandemic of monkeypox? Is the WHO going to declare a pandemic right after signing their little treaties? Uh, it's going to be so cute. All the little child brains will believe it. All of us will be like, hey, morons, we're not doing this again. Come on. ah, Come on. Monkey pox. Really? Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Oh. Oh, it's the Russians fault. Oh, it was Russian terrorists from a Ukrainian U.S. funded bio lab. Oh, I get it. I see how the whole thing's coming together. But sure, Kami, we'll take your word for it. Let's all lock down. Send me twelve hundred more dollars. That was the price of destroying everybody's career. (laughs) Ha 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 ha. Thank goodness we've got Bill Gates to save us again. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Maston and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. Hold up.